Chapter Seven, Part One of *The Guns of Shiloh*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *The Guns of Shiloh* by Joseph A. Olchellen. Chapter Seven: The Messenger, Part One. Victory, overwhelming and complete, had been won, but General Thomas could not follow into the deep mountains where his army might be cut off. So he remained where he was for a little while, and on the second day he sent for Dick. The general was seated alone in a tent, in an open end of which faced a fire, as it was now extremely cold. General Thomas had shown no undue elation over his victory. He was as silent as ever, and now, as always, he made upon Dick the impression of strength and indomitable courage. "'Sit down,' he said, waving his hand toward a camp-stool. Dick, after saluting, sat down in silence. I hear, said the general, that you behave very well in the battle, and that you are a lad of courage and intelligence. Courage is common. Intelligence, real intelligence, is rare. You were at Bull Run also, so I hear. I was, and the army fought well there, too, but late in the day it was seized with a sudden panic. Something that may happen at any time to raw troops. But we'll pass to the question in hand. The campaign here in the mountains is ended for this winter, but great matters are afoot further west. A courier arrived last night stating that General Grant and Commodore Foote were preparing to advance by water from Cairo, Illinois, and attempt the reduction of the Confederate forts on the Cumberland and Tennessee. General Buell, one of your own Kentuckians, is advancing southward with a strong Union force, and in a few days his outpost will be on Green River. It will be of great advantage to Buell to know that the Confederate army in the eastern part of the state is destroyed. He can advance with freedom, and, on the other hand, the southern leader, Albert Sidney Johnston, will be compelled to throw a portion of his force to the eastward to protect his flank, which has been uncovered by our victory at Mill Spring. Do you understand? I do, sir. Then you are to carry dispatches of the utmost importance from me to General Buell. After you reach his camp, if you reach it, you will, of course, be subject to his orders. I have learned that you know the country well between here and Green River. Because of that, because of your intelligence, real intelligence, I mean, you are chosen for this task. You are to change to citizens' clothes at once, and a horse of great power and endurance has been selected for you. But you must use all your faculties all the time. I warn you that the journey is full of danger. I can carry it out, replied Dick with quiet confidence, and I thank you for choosing me. I believe you will succeed, said the general, who liked his tone. Return here in an hour with all your preparations made, and I will give you the dispatches. Warner was filled with envy that his comrade was to go on a secret mission of great importance, but he generously wished him a full measure of success. "'Remember,' he said, "'that on an errand like yours presence of mind counts for at least fifty per cent. Have a quick tongue. Always be ready with a tale that looks true.' "'And remember, too,' said Sergeant Whitley, "'that however tight a place you get into, you can get into one tighter. Think of that, and it will encourage you to pull right out of the hole.' The two wrung his hand, and Major Hertford also gave him his warmest wishes. The horse chosen for him was a bay of tremendous power, and Dick knew that he would serve him well. He carried double blankets strapped to the saddle, pistols and holsters with another in his belt, an abundance of ammunition and food for several days in his saddlebags. Then he returned to General Thomas, who handed him a thin strip of tissue paper. "'It is written in indelible ink,' he said, "'and it contains a statement of our forces and their positions here in the eastern part of the state.' It also tells General Buell what reinforcements he can expect. 
If you are in imminent danger of capture, destroy the paper. But to provide for such a chance, in case you escape afterward, I will read the dispatches to you. He read them over several times and then questioned Dick. But the boy's memory was good. In fact, every word of the dispatches was burnt into his brain, and nothing could make him forget them. And now, my lad, said General Thomas, giving him his hand, you may help us greatly. I would not send a boy upon such an errand, but the demands of war are terrible and must be obeyed. The strong grasp of the general's hand imparted fresh enthusiasm to Dick, and for the present he did not have the slightest doubt that he would get safely through. He wore a strong suit of homemade brown jeans, a black felt cap with ear flaps, and high boots. The dispatch was pinned into a small inside pocket of his vest. He rode quickly out of camp, giving the sentinels the password, and the head of the horse was pointed west slightly by north. The ground was now frozen, and he did not have the mud to hold him back. The horse evidently had been longing for action. Such thews and sinews as his needed exercise. He stretched out his long neck, neighed joyously, and broke of his own accord into an easy canter. It was a lonely road, and Dick was glad that it was so. The fewer people he met, the better it was in every way for him. He shared the vigor and spirit of his horse. His breath turned to smoke, but the cold whipped his blood into a quicker torrent. He hummed snatches of the songs that he had heard Samuel Jarvis sing, and went on mile after mile through the high hills toward the low hills of Kentucky. Dick did not pass many people. The ancient name of his state, the dark and bloody ground, came back to him. He knew that war in one of its worst forms existed in this wild sweep of hills. Here the guerrillas rode, choosing their sides as suited them best, and robbing as paid them most. Nor did these rough men hesitate at murder. So he rode most of the time with his hand on the butt of the pistol at his belt, and whenever he went through woods, which was most of the time, he kept a wary watch to right and to left. The first person whom he passed was a boy riding on a sack of grain to mill. Dick greeted him cheerfully, and the boy, with the fearlessness of youth, replied in the same manner. "'Any news your way?' asked Dick. "'Nothing at all,' replied the boy, his eyes enlarging with excitement. "'But from the way you are coming, we hear tell there was a great battle, hundreds of thousands of men on each side, and that the Yankees won. Is it so, mister?' "'It is true,' replied Dick. "'A dozen people have told me of it, but the armies were not quite so large as you heard. It is true also that the Yankees won.' I'll tell that at the mill. It will be big news to them. And which way you be going, mister? said the boy with all the frankness of the hills. I'm on my way to the middle part of the state. I've been looking after some land that my people own in the mountains. Looks like a lonesome road, this. Will I reach any house soon? Thar's Ben Trimble's house three miles further on, but take my advice and don't stop there. Ben says he ain't going to be troubled in these war times by visitors, and he's likely to meet you at the door with his double-barrel shotgun. I won't knock on Ben's door, so he needn't take down his double-barrel shotgun. What's next beyond Ben's house? A half-mile further on you come to Hungry Creek. It ain't much in the middle of summer, but right now it's full of cold water. Enough of it to come right up to your horse's body. You go through it careful. Thank you for your good advice, said Dick. I'll follow it, too. Goodbye. He waved his gauntleted hand and rode on. A hundred yards further and he glanced back. The boy had stopped on the crest of a hill and was looking at him. But Dick knew that it was only the natural curiosity of the hills, and he renewed his journey without apprehension. At the appointed time he saw the stout log cabin of Ben Trimble by the roadside with the warm smoke rising from the chimney, but true to his word he gave Ben and his shotgun no trouble, 
and continued straight ahead over the frozen road until he came to the banks of Hungry Creek. Here, too, the words of the boy came true. The water was both deep and cold, and Dick looked at it doubtfully. He urged his great horse into the stream at last, and it appeared that the creek had risen somewhat since the boy had last seen it. In the middle the horse was compelled to swim, but it was no task for such a powerful animal, and Dick, holding his feet high, came dry to the shore that he sought. The road led on through hills, covered with oak and beech and cedar and pine, all the deciduous trees bare of leaves, their boughs rustling dryly whenever the wind blew. He saw the smoke of three cabins nestling in snug coves, but it was a full three hours before he met anybody else in the road. Then he saw two men riding toward him, but he could not tell much about them as they were wrapped in heavy gray shawls and wore broad-brimmed felt hats, pulled down well over their foreheads. Dick knew that he could not exercise too much caution in this debatable land, and his right hand dropped cautiously to the butt of his pistol in such a manner that it was concealed by his heavy overcoat. His left hand rested lightly on the reins as he rode forward at an even pace. But he did not fail to take careful note of the two men who were now examining him in a manner that he did not like. Dick saw that the strangers openly carried pistols in their belts, which was not of overwhelming significance in such times in such a region, but they did not have the look of mountaineers riding on peaceful business, and he reined his horse to the very edge of the road that he might pass them. He noted with rising apprehension that they checked the pace of their horses as they approached, and that they reined to either side of the road to compel him to go between them. But he pulled his own horse out still further, and as they could not pass on both sides of him without an overt act of hostility, they drew together again in the middle of the road. "'Morning, stranger,' they said together, when they were a few yards away. "'Good morning,' said Dick, riding straight on, without checking his speed. But one of the men drew his horse across the road and said, "'What's your hurry? It ain't friendly to ride by without passing the time of day.' Now, at close range, Dick liked their looks less than ever. They might be members of that very band of skellies which had already made so much trouble for both sides— and he summoned all his faculties in order to meet them at any game that they might try to play. "'I've been on land business in the mountains,' he said, "'and I'm anxious to get back to my home. Besides, the day is very cold, and the two facts deprive me of the pleasure of a long conversation with you, gentlemen. Good day.' "'Wait just a little,' said the spokesman, who still kept his horse reined across the road. "'These be war times, and it's important to know what a fellow is. Be you for the Union, or you with the secesh?' Dick was quite sure that whatever he answered they would immediately claim to be on the opposite side. Then would follow robbery and perhaps murder. "'Which is your side?' he asked. "'But we put the question first, the fellow replied. Dick no longer had any doubts. The second man was drawing his horse up by the side of him as if to seize him, while the first continued to bar the way. He was alarmed, deeply alarmed, but he lost neither his courage nor his presence of mind. Luckily he had already summoned every faculty for instant action, and now he acted. He uttered a sudden shout and raked the side of his horse with both spurs. His horse was not only large and powerful, but of a most high spirit. When he heard that shout and felt the burning slash of the spurs, he made a blind but mighty leap forward. The horse of the first stranger, smitten by so great a weight, fell in the road and his rider went down with him. The enraged horse then leaped clear of both and darted forward at headlong speed. As his horse sprang, Dick threw himself flat upon his neck, and the bullet that the second man fired whistled over his head. By impulse he drew his own pistol and fired back. He saw the man's pistol arm fall as if broken, and he heard a loud cry. That was a lucky shot indeed, and rising a little in his saddle he shouted again and again to the great horse that served him so well. The gallant animal responded in full. He stretched out his long neck, and the road flew fast behind him. 
Sparks flashed from the stones where the shod hooves struck, and Dick exulting felt the cold air rush past. Another shot was fired at long range, but the bullet did not strike anywhere near. Dick took only a single backward glance. He saw the two men on their horses, but drooping as if weak from hurts, and he knew that for the present at least he was safe from any hurt from them. But he allowed his horse his head for a long time, and then he gradually slowed him down. No human being was in sight now, and he spoke to the noble animal soothingly. "'Good old boy,' he said. "'The strongest, the swiftest, the bravest, and the truest. I was sorry to make those red stripes on your sides, but it had to be done. Only quickness saved us.' The horse neighed. He was still quivering from excitement and exertion. So was Dick, for that matter. The men might have been robbers, merely. They were at least that bad, but they might have deprived him also of his precious dispatch. He was proud of the confidence put in him by General Thomas, and he meant to deserve it. It was this sense of responsibility and pride that had attuned his faculties to so high a pitch, and that had made his action so swift, sudden, and decisive. But he steadied himself presently. The victory, for a victory it certainly was, increased his strength and confidence. He stopped soon at a brook. They seemed to occur every mile, and bathed with cold water the red streaks his spurs had made on either side of his horse. Again he spoke soothing words, and regretted the necessity that had caused him to make such wounds, slight though they were. He also bathed his own face and hands, and, as it was now about noon, ate of the cold ham and bread that he carried in his knapsack, meanwhile keeping constant watch on the road over which he had come. But he did not believe that the men would pursue, and he saw no sign of them. Mounting again, he rode forward. The remainder of the afternoon went by without interruption. He passed three or four people, but they were obviously natives of that region, and they asked him only innocent questions. The wintry day was short, and the twilight was soon at hand. He was riding over one of the bare ridges, when first he noticed how late the day had grown. All the sky was gray and chill, and the cold sun was setting behind the western mountains. A breeze sprang up, rustling among the leafless branches, and Dick shivered in the saddle. A new necessity was pressed suddenly upon him. He must find shelter for the night. Even with his warm double blankets he could not sleep in the forest on such a night. Besides, the horse would need food. End of chapter 7, part 1